it's good to be with you, and uh, I'm going to speak louder than the guy behind me. <laughs> i got a microphone, so that won't be so hard. I don't know what that is. We'll find out. It's just Ferragosto, is it? Okay. Well, we're going to double the rent for next year. <laughs> and there is a financial report coming up later in the service, actually, so you'll uh, see why. Um, let's begin our reflections on this really interesting and uh, important passage uh, with this proposition. One of the most defining important and attractive marks of a person in whom the spirit of the living God is at work, one of the most important, defining and attractive marks of a person in whom the spirit of the living God is at work is a heart set towards repentance. A heart that is soft and tender towards God, uh, in which a person uh, who, when they're faced with their weakness or failures, doesn't make excuses, doesn't tell yourself a story like, this is all just beyond me, I can't do any better than this, it wasn't my fault, but simply, cleanly and quickly acknowledges fault, knowing that the truth is there's actually much worse going on deeper down, if only you knew. One of the most defining, important and attractive marks of a person in whom the spirit of the living God is at work is a heart set towards repentance. And correspondingly, one of the most defining, important and unattractive marks of a person in whom the Spirit of God is absent is a heart that's set away from repentance, who in the face of weakness and failure gets aggressive or defensive or cynical. Repentance matters massively. The first recorded words of the public ministry of Jesus are a call to repentance in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand. And at the same time, uh, on the other hand, perhaps the defining feature of the Pharisees was not their immorality. After all, they were adherents of a morality that was as strict as any ever seen. And yet Jesus says that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we'll never enter the kingdom of God. And, and nor was it their religious observance. After all, they were as strict as ever any seen. And yet Jesus says that they were nothing more than whitewashed tombs, squeaky clean on the outside, and yet in their hearts full of death and corruption. No, the, the defining feature of the Pharisees was that they did not have a heart of repentance. And in this episode of Matthew's Gospels, we see uh, that stony cold heart towards God even in those who could not possibly conceive of themselves as other than entirely on God's side, as God's crack troops, the, the people that brought a particularly big smile towards God's face. And we see that stony cold heart displayed, firstly in the alternative to repentance, then second in their resistance to the basis of repentance, and finally in their failure to exhibit the character of repentance. So those are the, the way we're going to break open this passage, uh, the alternative to repentance, uh, the basis of repentance, and the character of repentance. So first then, the alternative to repentance. Uh, if you've been uh, here over the last couple of weeks, you'll remember that uh, Jesus has just refuted uh, perhaps the greatest challenge that uh, he had to face. Uh, yes, he was spiritually empowered, of that there was no doubt, uh, but the supernatural spiritual power with which he was endowed was from the dark side, from the evil one himself. That was the accusation. And his response is to expose both the corruption of 
the logic of the Pharisees who are challenging him, uh, as well as the corruption of their hearts. How can he cast out Satan by the power of Satan? That would be a house divided against itself, which would fall, and yet the power of Satan is evident in the lives of these people that Jesus is healing and curing. And how can they say that this obvious work is a work of the evil one other than speaking from a heart that's so corrupted and blind to the things of God? Because it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And therefore Jesus warns them, by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. And it's in response to this fierce challenge that the Pharisees and the scribes ask for a sign from Jesus. Now, it's important to, to be clear on what's going on when they ask for a sign. Uh, on the one hand, I think it strikes us as a little bit strange. Um, they've just seen a demoniac, mute, blind person healed. What, what kind of bigger sign is there? Well, I, that's, that's, I think, from our sort of post-enlightenment scientific perspective. Uh, from their perspective, um, it wasn't adequate. It wasn't definitive. It wasn't unambiguous. Uh, the miracle was open at least to different interpretation. That's what we see in the text, actually. No, they want some kind of indication specifically from God, directly, that this one speaks on behalf of God and acts on behalf of God. On the other hand, of course, the very act of asking for a sign is almost always dubious, now as much as then. There are a few times in the Gospels when people ask Jesus for a sign from a good heart, their desire is to know God in Jesus Christ, to see in him the way and the truth and the life, to know that God's gracious purposes are being fulfilled in, in him, this one, Jesus. There, there, there's one or two times when people ask for a sign from a good heart, but that's the exception rather than the rule. Mostly when people ask Jesus for a sign, they're seeking to test him. I want you to kind of work with me here because to, to bring this sign moment into the relationship to the idea of repentance is very, very important. It, it's what holds the passage together. So think about what it is to ask for a sign. You see, when you, when you ask God for a sign, it means you're seeking to submit Him to the scrutiny of your own criteria. When you ask God for a sign, that's what these Pharisees and scribes are doing. They're, they're asking Jesus to submit to the scrutiny of their criteria so that they stand as judge. So that they decide when Jesus measures up to a grade that they have set. And that is the basic disposition of an unrepentant heart. We see it all the time around us. Uh, we see it perhaps even within us. It involves a sentence that always starts with the words, if, if, if you really cared for me, God, you would, and then you just fill in whatever blank might come next. You, if you really cared for me, God, you would heal my family member after all the ways in which I've served you. Surely you can do that. If you really cared for me, God, you would fix up this part of my life, this habit, this addiction, this weakness, and then I'd really know that you have power if what I want to draw your attention to is um, the spiritual dynamic that's at work in this, in, in this practice of testing God I have a standard 
I have a criteria, I've got a test or a grade to which I require Jesus to measure up. And if it delivers, all well and good for him. And if he doesn't, well, that's that. And as soon as you put it like that, you can see what's, what's wrong with this testing and why it is that this is the essence of unrepentance. If I'm the setter of standards, if I'm the one who establishes the criteria, if I'm the arbiter of grades, then I can't ever be truly repentant. I just can't be. Repentance begins by measuring my behaviour and thoughts and attitudes, my acts and omissions against the standard of another of recognising that this other one is the Lord and the judge of my life. That it is to this one that I must give an account. But when I'm setting the standards, when I'm establishing the criteria, then I've already presumed to be my own judge. I've already presumed that there is no higher authority to whom I must give account than myself. I've already presumed that I'm the Lord, and therefore that Jesus is not. And Jesus sees it precisely for what it is. They ask him for a sign, and he's straight on it. He, he, he sees this unrepentance of the heart and calls it out for what it is, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I mean, this is Jesus at his most conciliatory, not, um, you know, evil is one thing. It's one thing that he calls them evil. These, again, remember who he's speaking to. These are people of utterly scrupulous moral standards and even more scrupulous religious observance. There is nothing upon which you could fault them. And, and, and Jesus will call them an evil and adulterous, now adulterous because they're supposed to belong to God like a spouse belongs to their partner. And they've instead wandered off. How can it be? What is it that Jesus sees that means he can call scribes and Pharisees an evil and adulterous? Well, he sees their hearts. He sees their hearts. Because the most important thing to the living and true God is a penitent, soft, pliable heart. But Jesus never condemns without offering a way forward. It's important, I mean, you need to know this personally, of course. Uh, he, he, never, he never shines a light into us without also showing us the way forward. And so secondly, the basis of repentance. You see, he offers to give them a sign. He offers to give them a sign, what he calls the sign of Jonah, which ought to form the basis for repentance. Point two. What is this? Uh, what is the sign of Jonah? Well, at first glance, it seems that Jesus, in fact, is offering the greatest of all signs uh, precisely to mollify the heart that's already set itself up as judge and king. See how he puts it in verse 44, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, uh, Jonah represents something of a, a kind of a, a, a forerunner, a test model for himself, Jesus, uh, that the career of Jonah in some sense prefigures the career of Jesus. Uh, Jonah 
Uh, if you read back into the, uh, it's a fairly short book, it's a, a good thing to do on a Sunday afternoon actually, just read through Jonah to get the background for this. He was, I think, the least attractive of all the Old Testament prophets. I mean, uh, Isaiah was pretty pumped, Jeremiah was a bit sort of down on himself. Jonah was just a jerk, right? He was just really, God told him to go east, he goes west in direct disobedience to God. That's not the point of similarity, by the way, to Jesus. That's, a, not, that's not where it is. Uh, rather, Jonah is diverted back to God's purposes for him by being swallowed up by a, a, a big fish. I mean, you sometimes translate it whale or sometimes sea monster, something like this. And who knows quite how this works. Apparently, there are people who have been swallowed by large fish that have lived in the belly of the fish because there's oxygen. Uh, you know, I'm just saying, there it is. Um, and he spends three days and three nights in the dark place of its stomach uh, before he gets vomited out onto dry land and figures, you know what, if God is going to go to this length to make sure I go west, uh, sorry, go east, then I better go east. And off he goes. And I think uh, that's what Jesus refers to by the sign of Jonah. That is, just as Jonah was rescued from death after three days and three nights, although he was rescued from death by escaping it, Jesus will be rescued from death not by escaping it after three days and three nights, but rather by going through it, by crashing out the other side, triumphant and victorious. And, and that, that, I think, uh, functions and is supposed to function for us as a sign. Um, I've, at my, uh, various points in my life, tried to stop being a Christian. I just, I got sick of it, I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm, I'm uh, you know, just, I'm, I'm failing and I can't, I've lost grip on grace and I've tried to stop being a Christian a few times in my life. And uh, God's gracious enough to me to, to kind of have this thought process run through my head, sort of a, almost in a conversational form. Uh, Andrew, did Jesus rise from the dead? Is, is the evidence for that changed at all? I mean, I know you're kind of miserable and and often you'll see evidence differently when you're miserable, but we all know what's going on there, right? That's just nonsense. Is, 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 did Jesus rise from the dead? Is the evidence for that change? Uh, no, the evidence hasn't changed. Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, does that make him the actual one and only hope uh, in and through death to triumph? That he's the only one who can defeat this greatest enemy of all of creation? Yes. Has he been raised to become the Lord of all heaven and earth and that means that he's alive now and there's every reason to think that he'll come back like we just sung with the kids to judge the living and the dead? Has that changed either? No. Well, you might like, not like being a Christian, but that's kind of not really the point, actually. Jesus is Lord. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? And so I think that the sign of Jonah in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is meant to function like that for us. It just stands there. It just, it's a sign. It's a signpost. It just says, you, you ain't got anywhere else to go in the face of death than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And then crashed through. But I think there's more to it than that as well. You see, after his uh, escape from this uh, large uh, fish, Jonah went to the Gentiles. Uh, and in particular, he didn't just go to the, any old Gentiles. He went to the hated oppressor, Nineveh, uh, the capital city of 
uh, the nation of Assyria, the then superpower of the world, you think that the United States or the USSR has exercised a difficult kind of world leadership at various points in time. That's nothing. You, you don't go back to Assyria. I'm telling you that in the uh, 8th century BC. They, those, they really knew how to just destroy people. Uh, they, they, their, their official um, conquest policy was genocide. That's just what they did. They would take a people, they would slaughter them all, they would put their own people in there, and Assyria would just expand, not by making peace and getting, you know, um, uh, loot from the country, they just killed everyone. And, and Jonah is sent to Nineveh to announce judgment to them. Forty days more and you'll perish. And they listen. They listen to this warning because, after all, a warning is always a moment of grace, isn't it? I mean, it's worth, it's worth being just clear on this. Uh, a warning is itself a moment of grace. If you tell someone, watch out, there's a shark there, then it's kind of helpful because that's a moment of grace that they can escape the shark. If you say the judgment of God is coming, what's the point of saying that except to... Help people escape the judgment of God. A warning is always a moment of grace. And Nineveh repented and turned to God. And likewise, you see, Jesus sends his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations at the end of Matthew's uh, gospel, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and ultimately to fulfill his prophetic words for the judgment of Israel. And if their hearts were not stony cold towards God, even in their morality and religious observance, these Pharisees would see it. They would hear the words of judgment announced by Jesus. They would see the power of God in his resurrection and they would repent. Because the truth is that one greater than Jonah is with them. Verse 41, the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see... Something greater than Jonah is here. And the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. This, this is astonishing. Normally it's the other way around. Everything in Jewish history and tradition and culture said it was the other way around. It's the Jewish people that will rise up and judge the Gentiles. But here it's the Gentiles, unclean spiritually corrupt Gentiles. Everything that Israel isn't, including repentant, that's what they were, you see. It's the one, only, and crucial thing that Nineveh had going for it. It was repentant. They'll be the ones who rise up and do the judging and Israel will be the one judged. And their hardness of hearts, you see, this is the kind of tragic irony of the grace of a warning is that it, will, it won't leave you where you are. The, the warning of God's judgment won't leave you where you are. It will either move you, it will wedge you. It will move you either harder and harder in your heart against or softer and softer in your heart in repentance towards. But you won't stay the same. 
And these Pharisees, the scribes, their hardness of heart is exposed by the fact that they, they received the sign of Jonah from the one who was even greater than Jonah as Jesus in due course is raised from the dead and still they won't repent. One greater than Jonah is here. He's greater than Jonah in that he didn't just warn of God's mercy. Sorry, he didn't warn, just warn of God's judgment. He bore it. He didn't just announce God's love and mercy. He enacted it by dying in our place on the cross. What more? What more do you need to evoke and to call out and to house the love of your hearts than a Lord who will die for you and rise in glory? What more do you need to turn into a soft, repentant person towards God than one who doesn't just warn you of God's judgment but bears it for you? And likewise, just as the Queen of the South uh, the Queen of Sheba came to Solomon to, as a seeker for wisdom. So Jesus says, one greater than Solomon is here. In that Solomon had wisdom that he could speak to others, but if you read the story, actually wasn't able to live out himself. Uh, made a whole, lot of bunch, a whole bunch of really terrible life decisions, is I think the way we would put it now. But Jesus not only spoke wisdom, he lived it out perfectly too. One greater than Jonah, one greater than Solomon. What more could be needed as an impetus for repentance? as a basis for coming humbly to Jesus and seeing in him truly the way and the truth and the life. His death was a death for others. His death was a death for you. How could there be anything more needed to feed your heart as you put your trust and connect and live a life in union with him? His wisdom is light in a dark world. His wisdom so beautifully holds together a fierce holiness with a fierce love. And more than anything else in our world, we need both of those two things together, don't you think? And for those Pharisees to fail to see the one before him for who he is, for us to fail to see the one before us for who he is, and therefore to find a soft heart set towards repentance far from us, be like the Ninevites, it'll be like the Queen of Sheba rising up at the resurrection. Those who you think know and understand less, but they get it right. To our shame. To the shame of those Pharisees and scribes, they get it right. Because they had the only thing that really matters. A heart of repentance. And the Pharisees fail. They, they can't break through their hardness of heart. They, 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 they won't see it. They keep shutting their eyes and sticking their heads in the sand. And it leads to disaster. That very strange little story that Jesus tells in verses 43 to 45 about an unclean spirit returning sevenfold, right? And so the state of the person at the end is worse than the state uh, uh, at the start. I, I think it's simply saying this. Look, unless Jesus is the center of your house, your, your life, your heart, un unless... He is there as the greater Jonah who bore your judgment, the greater Solomon who shines the light of his wisdom. In a way, you're in greater danger than if you'd never heard of Jesus in the first place, you see. The, the word for empty uh, here means something like um, unoccupied or underutilized, uninvolved, unresponsive. 
if you don't fill your heart with Jesus, this is the point, right? If you don't fill your heart with Jesus, then you will fill it with something else. And it will become gradually harder and harder. So what is, what is the character of repentance? Well, have we seen enough in this chapter to grasp it yet? It, 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 the chapter is an kind of object lesson in what it is to not be a person of repentance. Because repentance is not fundamentally turning away from the wrong things that you have done or said, although that will be the fruit of repentance. Repentance is not fundamentally just saying uh, to God, look, I'm sorry, God, I did it again. I'll try harder next time. That's, That's not repentance. If that's all there is to repentance, then it will be far too shallow to last. Now, just as Jesus says that the essence of the human experience is the heart, so repentance is fundamentally an experience of the heart. It's a shifting of your love, a reordering of all of your loves. You see, when we hear the word heart, don't leave it as some sort of vague and somewhat cuddly and warm concept. No, the heart is simply the sum of your loves and the way you order them. What you care about, what matters to you, what crushes you if you don't have it, what elates you if you do have it. It's, your heart is not vague. It's, it's, you, you, you have some knowledge of it all the time. You know what it is that you love. And what it is to repent from the heart is to reorder your loves so that you love small things a small amount. It's lovely being thought well of by other people, don't you think? Uh, it's a tiny thing. But boy, can we love that tiny thing such a great amount. And you know, you find out how much you love being well thought of by someone else is when you're criticised by them. I think, I think how we handle criticism is just one of the great spiritual litmus tests of the state of our hearts. If, if when you're criticised, your instinctive response is to go, you know what, that, that might not be all true, but there's some truth in it, and there's actually a lot worse than that, but you don't even know. And so you're open and responsive to learn and grow. But when you love being well thought of too much, you turn a little love, a little thing into a big love, and you get criticised, you get rejected, you get hurt, and you get really cranky, and you shut down, you shut out. And this can happen with strangers, this can happen with friends, by the way, in case you hadn't noticed yet, this can happen with spouses. Now, you've got to love little things a little amount. And you love medium things a medium amount. And you love big things. I'm going to give you some big things. Your enemies. That's a, that's a, a kind of a challenge from Jesus, isn't it? Loving your enemies. Uh, the poor. The widow and the orphan. You love your enemies and the marginalized. Those big things. You love them a big amount. And the only way you'll get that right is if you love Jesus most of all. That's what it is to have a penitent heart. And you'll know it. You'll know it when you have a beautiful mixture of both soft humility and strong boldness. Soft humility 
and strong boldness. There is a soft humility in repentance because the game is up. I'm known. I've been seen for what I am and I can no longer pretend. I don't need to try and keep up appearances any further. There's no place for posturing or managing anymore because I'm someone who sins. I, I mean, I say that. I know you don't believe it. You don't think I sin, do you? At least I, I only do nice little ministerial sort of sins. And I think the same of you. You just do nice little five dockier middle class sins, right? It's not true. I know it's not true of you because I know it's not true of me. The game's up. Your sins are up there on the cross. They're that bad, actually. They're that bad. There's no point pretending. We're done with that. Christ needed to die for me. That's how bad it is. So there is a, a soft humility in repentance. How can you see the cross and have tickets on yourself any longer? And at the same time, there's a strong boldness in repentance as well. Because I've given over to Jesus the right to judge me. You give over the, to Jesus the right to judge you and he says of you, you're okay. He says of you, you are clean. He says of you that by his death and resurrection, you are forgiven and washed and new. And that counts more than whatever anyone else says about you. That counts more than what even you say about yourself because you have given him the place of judgment in your life. And he says, I judge you okay, righteous, clean. See what boldness that brings to you in, in, in repentance. Repentance, while, uh, just simply wallowing in self-pity, humility without boldness, if you like, uh, that's not yet repentance because it still occupies the throne of judgment in your life. And likewise, arrogance, without, uh, arrogance or rather boldness without humility has also not yet become repentance because it still preserves the illusion of self-sufficiency. In both cases, you're still the judge of your life. In a way, you set up a sign. But one greater than Job and one greater than Solomon is here. And so the posture of our hearts is that we kneel and we confess and we ground our lives and we feed on Christ in our hearts. And we rise to serve him and his world in that humble boldness.